Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Uh, Good morning and good afternoon to friends in in Europe and good evening, of course, to friends that may be um, dialing in from, from Asia. Appreciate you joining us for this discussion of American and European interests, common interests really, in dealing with the China challenge. Uh, my name is Walter Lohman. I'm the director of the Asian Studies Center here at the Heritage Foundation. We've got a great program lined up, but before we dive in, I wanted to share just a couple uh, tips for making the most of this virtual experience. Um, number one, uh, please submit your questions uh, through the question tab uh, on the uh, right side of your screen uh, as you face it. Uh, feel free there to share to share your name and affiliation when you when you do that. It'd be good to know um, exactly who you are, and uh, uh, that'll that'll help us uh, help us out. Uh, number two, are there any technical issues? Uh, they'll only be minor. We just ask for your patience. Uh, you know, we're all living in a virtual world now, and a lot of us are working from home and and, and doing this from at home. So we'll fix it right away. Don't worry about it. Hang in there. Uh, and, and the third thing is. Um, to let you know that this will all be posted on the internet within within the next 45 uh, the, the next 48 hours on our on our website. Uh, so let's get started. You know, it's um, it's hard for Americans uh, to say, I think, especially people steeped in the stories of uh, American commitment to the Pacific in particular, but but, uh, but more generally Indo-Pacific. You know, those of us who um, know the story of Douglas MacArthur in World War II and the Cold War and all that. It's hard for us to say, but the truth is we need help dealing with dealing with China uh, at this point. It's not because of anything we've done or we haven't done over the years. Um, it's because the task is so enormous. Uh, there'll be countries and issues that uh, cause the U.S. problems over the next few decades uh, in the Middle East, elsewhere. Um, uh, but peacefully managing the rise of China will be the defining geopolitical the defining geopolitical challenge of our times, uh, maybe of the century. Uh, I dare say our European friends need us too. They're not bystanders in all of this. Uh, They have interests and values at stake in the region, and they can really only serve them if we work together. They're surely not going to get there by throwing themselves on the tender mercies of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, The good thing is that we actually share a vast majority of our respective interests, uh, that is we, the U.S. and Europe, our common history and habits of cooperation across a wide range of activities, uh, military, economic, political, uh, diplomatic, uh, uh, intelligence. Uh, th- those things are assets we cannot afford to let go wasting or, or underperform in the current challenge we have with the Chinese. So that's what we're here to do today, to talk about how we can work together, Europeans and Americans, in, in pursuit of our common interests and values and, and managing the China challenge. To do that, we have Deputy Secretary of State for Europe and Eurasian Affairs, Alex Alden, uh, with us in this virtual format. You know, I'm not going to go through a, a lot of bio here. Our time is limited, but I can't help but note, note that Alex's official bio says he is responsible for, quote, coordinating efforts to counter Chinese regional influence, uh, quote unquote, something I don't think before this administration was ever explicitly tasked to uh, EUR at State Department. So he, he's a perfect person to speak to this. He's also worked at the National Security Council staff and on Department of Defense 
uh, so he knows his his way around Washington. Uh, then we'll hear from uh, my friend Emmanuel Puig from the French Ministry for the Armed Forces, but I'll tell you a little bit uh, a little bit more about him when we um, uh, when we get to that point. So with that, let me turn it over to Alex uh, to get us started. So Alex, if you could turn on your camera and look forward to hearing from you. Well, thank you very much for uh, for your kind introduction. Uh, it is really a pleasure uh, to be here this morning with you and uh, and the rest of the participants in this discussion. Um, I have to acknowledge uh, it's a truism these days, but we are living in uh, in challenging times uh, uh, due to COVID, and 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 I'm 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 happy that we can still somehow find a way to get together and discuss these important issues that are that are facing us and all of our allies and partners. Um, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has, has has definitely laid bare some existing challenges to to the international order, uh, and we must come together to find a consensus-based solution. Um, the contrast between free democratic societies and autocratic regimes has never been uh, more apparent. I'd like to I'd like to talk to you a bit uh, about the, the the foundation that the transatlantic relationship, transatlantic partnership is for the United States uh, for our role in the world. Uh, and I'd like to discuss then the challenges posed by the People's Republic of China. Uh, look a little bit in the genesis of this problem, how we got here, and uh, diagnose some 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 of these challenges, and then uh, discuss maybe some. Uh, some common approaches that we can take. Uh, so let me start by saying that, uh, as uh, I'm preaching to the choir probably here, but many of you know that the transatlantic, transatlantic relationship has been the cornerstone of an unprecedented period of peace and prosperity in, 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 in our history. Uh, our relationship is built on a foundation of shared values, a commitment to democratic governance, our respect for human rights and the rule of law, openness and transparency, and the economic ties that generate shared prosperity. Uh, we now have an opportunity to continue to build on our mutual commitment to our transatlantic values and cooperate uh, and, and continue to cooperate as we have done in the past 75 years, which have brought so much peace and prosperity to not only to our uh, Atlantic region, but also across the world. Uh, so this, this relationship remains the bedrock of US foreign policy. Um, now, uh, there are challenges on the horizon, as, as you pointed out in your opening, uh, in, your, in your introduction, and quite frankly, the COVID-19 crisis has revealed more clearly than ever uh, the global power competition in, we, in which we currently live. Uh, from sowing the disinformation to si censoring and silencing its critics, the Chinese Communist Party has shown quite clearly it has no interest in a transparent, open, uh, and democratic future. Uh, COVID-19, uh, regretfully, I like to say, it was a containable outbreak. We could have done better. However, through its authoritarian actions and cover-ups, the Chinese Communist Party turned a manageable outbreak into a global pandemic that has killed over one million people and brought ruin to the global economy. Uh, Secretary Pompeo has spoken to this, um, and I'd like to just refer to some of his remarks, quote, just think how much better off the world would be, not to mention the people inside China if we had been able to hear from the doctors in Wuhan and they'd been allowed to raise the alarm about the outbreak of a new and novel virus, end quote. Uh, instead of doing this, instead of, instead of heeding a, a, sage, say, say a, a sage perspective on this, Beijing did not share information in a timely manner. It delayed scientific collaboration. It denied the world access to physical lives, virus samples collected in Wuhan and censored scientists and journalists. This behavior is in direct contrast to how we in the United States and in Europe and our uh, allies and partners in Asia 
operate and how we addressed the crisis. Now, I think to some extent, uh, we have all diagnosed that General Secretary Xi's vision is one to make uh, the world safe for uh, uh, CCP authoritarianism and, and anti-competitive trade practices, one in which, uh, with, with which we uh, are at odds and is at odds with the international order that we've established over, over the past 75 years. This means we must reinvest in our democratic institutions and support a transatlantic partnership for the next seven plus decades as we have uh, since the end of World War II. Uh, now, I think it's important for us to uh, discuss a little bit uh, uh, the, the question of how we got here. The COVID-19 has definitely uh, uh, served as, as a crisis that has been a tripwire to reveal the, the, the hand of the Chinese Communist Party, but there is a long story to how we've gotten here. So for the past several decades, we assumed that bringing the PRC into the international economic system uh, would result into a PRC's adherence to the same market-oriented rules and norms that China itself has benefited so much and it's enabled its, uh, its tremendous economic growth and development. Uh, for those reasons, we welcome the PRC into the global order and continuously encourage democratization, respect for human rights, market-based economic reforms, and the rule of law. Um, there is a rules-based order that we all have been uh, complying with and benefiting from, and unfortunately, the PRC ignores uh, this, this uh, set of rules of the road, especially when it comes to upholding and protecting human rights. Uh, instead, what the CCP does, it limits academics, diplomats, journalists' access within China, uh, and, and, and is also intimidating a lot of CEOs and heads of companies into, into silence to their, to their malign practices. Uh, we were optimistic that engagement with the PRC would lead to shared values uh, or greater convergence, that uh, the international participation of, of, of China was going to socialize China into becoming a more benign actor. However, uh, unfortunately, it seems to be working in the other direction where Chinese access to international institutions has been having, uh, having the opposite effect, where China has been subverting these for their own uh, often malign, uh, uh, malign effects. Uh, today, we need to recognize that our open arms approach to China did not produce the results we expected, and it is time to take stock of what we have worked and for those things that haven't worked, uh, how to change course. Uh, it has become clear that instead, PRC seeks to reshape uh, the international order to serve their very own narrowly uh, uh, defined interests. Uh, put simply, if the PRC wants to continue to reap the benefits of participating in, in, the, in the international order, it must respect and abide by the rules. Uh, however, this time we have to take a very much of a results-oriented approach, as Secretary Pompeo has stated it. So, results-oriented and, as Secretary stated, uh, distrust and verify. Now, I would like to shift a bit more on the topic at hand of, uh, of U.S.-European uh, uh, collaboration and, and what I actually am happy to report, an increased convergence, especially in the assessment and the challenge. Uh, again, uh, with COVID-19, leaders and publics across Europe have also come to the realization that there is a serious challenge here that we need to confront. To frame this discussion, this is not a matter of European countries or the EU, for that matter, choosing between the United States and China. Uh, we are not the ones uh, forcing Europe to choose between us and China. Quite frankly, Beijing is forcing this choice. Uh, and there is really no choice when you think of it uh, when it comes to, to, to the values that we share 
and, and, and the free and democratic and open societies versus the Chinese Communist Party's authoritarianism. Um, and this is really about the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese people are being used uh, by the regime for their own purposes. Uh, in reality, the CCP is really forcing all of us to affirm our commitment to the international rules-based order and take action to restore the reciprocity and balance in our respective relationships with Beijing. Both the United States and the EU are deeply intertwined with the PRC, whether we are talking about trade, investment, research, or cultural people-to-people -people ties. And while we are not asking Europe to choose between us and China, we do urge our European friends to take a strong stance against PRC's aggression in, uh, in defense of the democratic values and interests, particularly respect for human rights that form the bedrock of the transatlantic partnership. Uh, the PRC's recent withdrawal with signature resolution uh, to the UN Human Rights Council is one example where the EU's firm commitment can make a great deal of difference. The PRC withdrew their resolution only after the EU actively lobbied against it and decided to call for a vote. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party remains a significant threat to global democracies and the rules-based international order, and we need to acknowledge that. Uh, I think that uh, what I think it's important to, to, to speak to, in addition to the human rights, uh, human rights and the values uh, uh, challenge, to also discuss the, the economic practices of what we have referred to as the Chinese economic aggression. Uh, Beijing's poor record of following through on economic reform commitments and its extensive use of state-driven protectionist policies and predatory practices distort global markets, undermine the rules-based order, coerce partners, as well as damage the environment. PRC subsidies and state-backed preferential loans to its own national champions debilitate fair competition and have created an unlaid, unlevel playing field for the United States, uh, for American and European companies. Uh, as the Secretary has, has, uh, has recently said, the CCP is, quote, alienating potential allies, breaking trust at home and abroad, rejecting property rights and and uh, the predictable rule of law. But fortunately, there is an awakening across Europe that the secretary calls the transatlantic awakening uh, and important strides have been made. The EU, uh, the EU's recent push to defeat PRC's signature resolution, the UN Human Rights Council was an example that I just mentioned. Uh, but there are other many, many good, uh, many good uh, uh, steps forward. In the last two years, the EU released its strategic outlook on EU-China relations, which labels the PRC as an economic competitor and a systemic rival, and, it released, and it's released the toolbox of measures to mitigate the cybersecurity risks that untrusted vendors present to 5G networks. Uh, a number of member states have also signed MOUs and joint declarations with the United States on 5G security. Uh, most, of, most of those co-signatories were in Europe. Many European countries also have joined join us to raise awareness on the human rights situation uh, in, uh, across, across China. Most recently, in a joint statement on Xinjiang and Hong Kong, co-signed by the United States and 39 of our partners delivered by Germany to the UN General Assembly's third committee. Together, we have shown the strength and strategic value that comes from a united transatlantic front to the challenge posed by the PRC. Now, having shared this common assessment, uh, and quite frankly, some of these assessments we've arrived to jointly, and, and some uh, we have arrived to independently across the Atlantic, which also speaks volumes um, to the recognition of the, of the challenge that we're facing 
uh, that, that sometimes we come to the same conclusions independently. That speaks to our shared interests and values as well to the challenge that China poses. Now, what are the next steps? Uh, you know, how can we work together to, to, uh, to forge a more common approach? Um, I think what's very important to state, uh, both here in the United States and in Europe, that we all seek uh, a, a relationship with China that is based on reciprocity and responsibility. Uh, it is about a results-oriented relationship, and we cooperate with the PRC in areas where we can achieve real, real results. Um, this is not about decoupling nor containment, neither of which are feasible or attractive options based on the current state of our relationship and the world. And while Americans and Europeans admittedly might not use the same words to describe how we view international politics or how we even respond to challenges around us, we do approach the world in, very, in a very similar fashion, and that is based on those uh, commonly shared interests and values that we have. We have a desire to protect our interests, defend our collective security, promote democratic values, and defend the rules uh, upon which we have uh, we've worked together to improve the, the, the global situation. Um, we encourage European governments and the EU to maintain a firm stance in the face of PRC's increasingly authoritarian and not reciprocal approach to its external relations, as well as its malign influence on, uh, on governments and societies across the world. We also welcome the many European officials and legislators who speak and openly, openly criticize uh, Beijing's human rights uh, abuses, especially the calls to end the human rights crisis in Xinjiang and Hong Kong. Uh, it is through dialogue with our European allies that we build upon our convergence uh, in assessment of this to this challenge and, 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 and forge a consensus upon which uh, a common approach can be based. That's why the upcoming US-EU dialogue on the PRC is so important, and I hope to be able to report more on that in the near future. Uh, so we shouldn't ignore how closely we work uh, together across the Atlantic on these challenges. I think there is oftentimes coverage on on irritants there, there might be in the transatlantic relationship, but I'd like to state that those irritants are a bird pangs of a stronger, deeper, uh, more symmetric relationship between the United States and, and Europe. Um, I think we should push forward uh, from urging accountability for CCP's actions on the most pressing abuses occurring in some of the regions in, uh, in, uh, that I've mentioned, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, but also Tibet, to seek to protect the integrity of international organizations to continuing and advancing the, uh, the, uh, the, the advocating for the exclusion of non-trusted vendor, vendors from 5G networks. We have much in common across the spectrum in those, uh, in those items that I just listed. Together, the United States and European allies have formed the bedrock of an international order which has led to our shared peace and prosperity and has ensured that it will not be undermined uh, and will continue to ensure that it is not undermined by malign actors. As we work together on these challenges, we will continue to build upon that foundation, leaving us all stronger and better poised to take on any new crisis that might come our way. Uh, I appreciate and I thank you for uh, letting me share my opening remarks, and I look forward to our frank discussions on this very important challenge that will, that will, uh, that will affect our generation and possibly those coming forward. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, Alex. That was, that was a very, very good start to this uh, conversation. Um, to offer a European perspective, we're very pleased to have with us uh, Emmanuel Puig, uh, Dr. Emmanuel Puig, I should say. Uh, he's Assistant uh, Deputy Director for Defense Strategy at G DGRIS, um, Director General for International Relations and Strategy at the French Ministry for the Armed Forces. 
Uh, that's a really long title in manual, but I, but I, but I weathered through it and I read the whole thing. Um, uh, Emmanuel's been at, at DGRIS for about five years, focused on Asia. In fact, he has uh, China studies uh, experience before that. Uh, but more important, I think, uh, what commends Emmanuel to this uh, to this forum today is that he's a very good friend of U.S.-French relations and U.S.-European relations. He he really gets it, and he sees the need for us to work together. So. Um, we're very happy to have him here to talk to us. So with that, let me uh, turn it over to you, uh, Emmanuelo, and uh, look forward to hearing what you have to say. Why don't we work with that? Uh, why don't we try to work that out? And um, in the meantime, maybe Alex could take some questions. Does that make sense? And then as soon as, uh, as, soon as Emmanuel gets up and running, we'll, we'll hear from him. How about that? Does that sound good, Alex? Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, great. Thank you. Uh, uh, Emmanuel, as soon as you're ready, let us know and we'll bring you back on. Um, I, I encourage folks to send in questions as well if they if they have some, but uh, you, you you provoke many, uh, many that I have. One, one we focus on a lot at Heritage, a set of issues, is the, um, is the Taiwan issue. And I wonder how you see that with regard to the Europeans. I mean, I, I'm pretty familiar with um, the U.S. position over many years, and, and I would I would say although the Trump administration is really better than any in 40 years on Taiwan. I mean, that is just a, a, objectively speaking, uh, honestly, um, it's still within the framework of a, of a US-China policy. And so, you know, I, I'm pretty familiar with it, but how have you found the Europeans uh, on this issue? I think that uh, I will refer to the uh, more recent uh, trip of the Czechs, uh, uh, president of the Senate, a visit to Taiwan, and uh, as you may know, he led a pretty large delegation. Uh, he's given a powerful speech where he's uh, echoed uh, President Kennedy's speech to Berlin uh, and, and called himself a Taiwanese. And uh, in uh, in the wake of that uh, that trip, uh, there's been a pretty strong reaction from uh, from Beijing, which uh, which I think has put a whole lot of European governments uh, and the EU uh, uh, is taken quite by surprise by the strength of kind of intimidation and the types of threats that, that they make. Uh, so that's all to say that the pandemic, COVID-19, uh, uh, and, and some of these evolving political situations are, are getting the Europeans to, 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 uh, to, to look at the, the situation in Taiwan from a new perspective, right? And so I think that in addition to COVID, in addition to, 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 the, to, the, to, the, to the, this, these high-level visits, the Hong Kong situation too is uh, having having many uh, reflect upon uh, how they how they approach the question Taiwan, but that's to say that this is a dynamic and evolving uh, situation, and I I will not I would not uh, go further than than that. But this there's definitely more of a conversation about Taiwan in Europe that you might have had before. Yeah, yeah, imagine. You know, um, uh, another question that has actually come to us uh, on the on the ch chat here. Um, it's, it's a little bit sensitive, I, I know, um, from several different perspectives, but do you think there's a role for NATO to play at all um, in dealing with this challenge? I mean, NATO has its partnerships and, and that sort of thing in the region, and the Secretary General uh, goes out there, um, you know, and does a few visits, but I don't know, do you, what do you see the role of NATO, if anything? Uh, well, NATO has uh, has already uh, 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 referred to China as uh, in the language of, uh, of of something to consider in its uh, in its uh, in its effort in the in the category of challenges and opportunities. 
so NATO is uh, NATO is definitely looking at this uh, dimension. Uh, this is this is something that uh, that is being worked by colleagues, and uh, uh, and uh, so it's definitely part of the conversation. Uh, so now, how that manifests itself and 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 in concrete terms, that's that's still being uh, discussed, decided. But uh, but I can definitely say that yes, NATO is uh, is uh, looking at uh, uh, China as a as a as a factor, and of course, in 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 geopolitics, and clearly affecting uh, to some extent uh, uh, the collective security of, of of its members. So this is this is already part of conversation, and I welcome uh, my French colleagues' elaboration of that. Again, uh, ministries of defense. Uh, probably discussing this more uh, in more detail uh, in the NATO context. Yeah, I mean the the, uh, the take I hear a lot of times from the European side, and like you said, maybe Emmanuel will have some comment on this too, is that they would do their best, uh, the Europeans, by strengthening NATO with its traditional challenge in its area of responsibility, and in and in Europe, especially with regard to uh, the Russia uh, the Russia challenge, and then that would free us up. But but it's always struck me as a little bit too uh, too convenient, you know. I mean, we're not asking for the we're not asking anyone to move the world, but we just you know give us give us a, a ship once in a while, uh, you know. The French do, the Brits do, but uh, more often than not, I hear the Europeans pleading poor when it comes to suggestions that they deploy an asset, say, to South China Sea or Taiwan Straits. Can you hear me? Yes, we hear you. Oh. Great. Emmanuel, sorry, sorry for that. Um, if you get the impression that I'm speaking from a secure underground facility, well, I, actually, it's the case. Um, we had to override <laughs> an entire security system here to, so I could speak to you. So I probably created uh, a security breach. So uh, I hope uh, you appreciate the effort. Yeah, no problem. Um, I'm glad to be here and I'm glad to be part of this discussion today. Um, I feel like it's an ongoing uh, conversation taking place both with uh, Alexander and Walter, since we already had, especially with Alexander, the chance to address the issue together uh, just a few weeks ago. Um, so I will speak uh, quickly about uh, uh, three, three things. The first is the situation in Europe vis-à-vis -vis China. The evolution uh, of the situation. Um, the situation as uh, seen from the French MOD uh, and the prospects uh, for um, EU-US cooperation. So the situation in Europe, um, what are the trends? Um, Ten years ago, uh, China was first a commercial and second political issue. Uh, but for most of the European countries, it was only a commercial issue. Uh, the bilateral political uh, um, uh, uh, agenda was revolving around economic and commercial issues, uh, important ones, but only about that, without a sense of being entangled in a, in a growing strategic uh, competition. But it's not the case anymore. Uh, and there's a growing awareness in Europe about the strategic and political agenda of China, especially a growing experience of the Chinese way to divide and rule, uh, through several political frameworks, selected bilateral cooperation within the EU, uh, such as the 16 plus 1 and now 17 plus 1, um, which is now, uh, I would say, a sensitive issue, uh, contrasting with uh, uh, eight years ago when its creation went, all, went almost unnoticed, completely under the radar at the time. 
since the EU's 2016 elements for a new strategy on China, um, the EU members have been called to take uh, several uh, several actions on on a number of key issues: market access, reciprocity, uh, investment agreement, global public goods, security, um, as well as uh, the rule of law and obviously human rights. Uh, these documents uh, uh, called for, for, for more cohesion, more efficiency, uh, and, and we have to acknowledge that some progress uh, has been made uh, in investment screening, for example, uh, and the position vis-a-vis -vis China has gradually improved, especially uh, through the fact that we decided to, to stand firm on the principle of, of reciprocity for market, market access, for example. Um, meaning that the EU won't go further in trade agreements uh, or political statements uh, without it. Um, so it seems that now uh, we are maintaining this position, even though some EU members are still eager to, to, to welcome Chinese investment without any specific screening process. Um, at least uh, uh, it seems that um, there are, are less counting uh, uh, on, on, on this investment right now, but it's, the Chinese influence is still a problem when you uh, when you deal, for example, with uh, uh, um, uh, the cohesion of the EU member state, uh, uh, the potential for a joint declaration, and we saw, for example, recently uh, once again that uh, uh, it was a problem to 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 uh, to build this cohesion, but still. I think our position has changed and the fact that uh, Josep Borrell, uh, the, the high representative for, for, of the European Union, has named China a uh, systemic competitor, um, clearly showed a shift in the common vision of China in Brussels, uh, echoing what was already taking place uh, in other capitals. And so uh, we took several measures and, and agreed on a list of principles in order to uh, reduce uh, for example, Chinese direct leverages, and especially through investments uh, and commercial activities. Uh, so um, recently, uh, we, uh, following the, the EU-wide screening framework adopted in 2018, um, several EU countries have updated their uh, or set up new FDI screening policies. Um, France, for example, adopted in, in, in November 2018 the new decree expanding the list of sensitive sector in which investment uh, are now subjected to review. Um, so I would say that China, as a global power, is now firmly in Europe, whether it is through investment, loans, commercial agreements, uh, 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 public diplomacy, political influence. Um, China is still and, and, and probably will remain for the next few years one of the top lobbyists in Brussels. But we, as EU members, can live with that and mitigate uh, the adversarial ef uh, effects of such footprint by remaining aware of the stakes, um, by upgrading our tools and regulation to put a framework over Chinese activities and not let them uh, unsupervised and free-flowing like, like it was more or less the case. On top of that, um, I should mention that the effect of the COVID-19 crisis in Europe, and especially the unattended uh, effect of China's poor public 
diplomacy and the disastrous consequences of its uh, wolf warrior diplomacy. Uh, and uh, not only the crisis showed uh, um, our vulnerabilities in terms of dependency, value chain vulnerabilities, uh, limited market access to China, uh, but it showed also that Beijing uh, did not hesitate to push these buttons to take advantage of uh, our weak position. Um, while in the meantime, uh, kind of waging an informational warfare uh, that attracted a lot of attention in Europe and, and brought a lot of bad publicity uh, over China. So the key takeaway here, when you look at when you look at the situation in Europe, is that despite the remaining work, and there's a lot of work remaining, uh, the awareness that China should be addressed as a strategic issue. Um, it is becoming almost a basic principle for uh, every European administration, or at least the, ma the majority of um, EU members. Um, and, and precisely one element uh, which, make me, which makes me say that is that uh, three or four years ago, uh, we as French Ministry for the Armed Forces um, almost never addressed the China issue with our European allies. Um, and now that's not the case anymore. Um, that's that's uh, uh, that's a topic every time. So the issue as seen from the French MOD, um, our assessment of China as a global power challenging uh, the international rule-based rule order um, was very clear in our uh, um, 2017 strategic review. We added some sophistication in our uh, 2019 defense strategy for the Indo-Pacific. Uh, but the original statement uh, was there. Uh, the original statement was that from the South China Sea to the uh, eastern shore of Africa, Chinese commercial and diplomatic activities, uh, as well as uh, its military deployment, footprints in Djibouti, uh, are changing the strategic landscape. And on the top of that, um, the US-China competition will definitely frame strategic issues uh, in the Indo-Pacific, but also elsewhere in Europe, for example. Um, so for France, the fact that um, dealing with China as a global strategic issue um, was uh, uh, came more accurately after uh, uh, China set up its, ba its base in Djibouti. Um, for us, uh, having to cope with the PLA in our operational environment was not exactly something we were uh, prepared for. Uh, that's not the case anymore, but it took time to figure out exactly uh, what to do and how to do that. Um, so now we are taking this major shift into account in our uh, strategic thinking as well as in our defense policies. Um, so in a way, we had no choice but to think strategically about China's global activities with the focus on the Indian Ocean uh, the Med Sea, the Arctic. Um, so we had a first-hand experience of uh, 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 of what could or what was going on. Um, but in Europe, we're not the only one uh, and the only European power uh, concerned. Um, nowadays, uh, I heard you talking about NATO. Um, the fact that China is is a matter of discussion within NATO uh, is definitely a good thing. Uh, because it raises the awareness and help thinking about the 
indirect effect of China's influence within NATO uh, member state, um, and 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 um, and all the uh, uh, geostrategic consequences uh, of, of these moves of uh, uh, of the PLA reaching in our uh, geostrategic neighborhood. Um, but in the meantime. Uh, we should not forget that the PLA footprint in the North Atlantic, uh, being what it is, um, we should not lose our strategic raison d'être. And, uh, and so there's a balance to reach here uh, between awareness, prepared, preparedness, and, and the capability for us um, to deal uh, with the current uh, China uh, challenge. And um, looking at the kind of tools and leverages that China is using in Europe, um, there is no doubt whatsoever that uh, the EU is uh, uh, better equipped uh, and should be first and, and the first and the main avenue uh, when dealing with China in Europe. Nevertheless, uh, my point here was uh, uh, to underline the fact that uh, the time where, when China was a, a commercial issue is, uh, is completely over in Europe. Uh, and among other things, the global reach of the PLA is something that is also changing the European Union uh, security equation in its environment, uh, in its approaches, uh, because, it, because it could have an adversarial effect on how to protect our interests over the medium and long term. So to, uh, to conclude here, um, the prospects for US-EU cooperation. Um, first of all, you should not forget uh, we're talking to you right now. Um, I'm just a representative from the French MOD seated in, in a bunker. So uh, I'm not sure that uh, uh, for many Europeans, uh, I'm somewhere near that, uh, what they would call a representative. Nevertheless, um, I think that what is clear is that uh, we, the US and the EU, share the same assessment about China as a challenge to the existing world uh, order. And, and as Alexander underlined also, um, uh, um, we also share the ba basic assessment about the fact that uh, uh, China's increasing influence, whether it is in the international organization or through its own initiatives, such as the BRI, of course, uh, will have a lot of unexpected and adversarial effects on our principles, uh, values, and, and, and interests. Um, so recently, if you read, if you take a look at all the uh, uh, recent strategic or political statements issued uh, in Europe on China and the Indo-Pacific, um, whether it is the French or the strategy or the latest document released by Germany, um, there is almost, almost no daylight between the US vision, uh, uh, the European vision and, and our goals. So I am pretty confident uh, uh, that we are heading the same way and that we will remain fundamentally like-minded and focused uh, on the same goals. The foundation are solid, um, but it does not mean that uh, the building will be perfect. Um, and in practice, uh, as Alexander under, underlined, uh, we had irritants, um, there were some bumps in the road, um, and potentially other bumps ahead. Uh, but we are, uh, 
speaking between friends here. Um, and so if we want to build long-lasting strategic synergy, um, and I am speaking about a workable one, um, we as EU members uh, will need at least, I think, two things uh, from the US. Um, and I guess the first thing will be uh, more predictability. Uh, meaning that after four years, uh, we are now well aware that President Trump uh, loves harm-twisting uh, policies and disruptive approach, um, but it is difficult for us to be willing to, 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 to commit uh, uh, if the only thing we receive is mixed signals about uh, our relevance uh, as a political actor, uh, as a political entity, and, and the will or the need to cooperate, among other things. The second thing that we will need um, is uh, reliability and um, looking at how the US-China competition is, is turning right now, um, I have to say that the fear of most European countries um, is to be caught between the rock and, and the hard place. Um, so we are looking at November 3rd uh, with a bit of anxiety, uh, but we hope that uh, um, no matter what the result is, uh, we could improve our mutual reliance. So um, to conclude, um, I would say that, um, as we say in France, il n'y a pas d'amour, il y a juste des preuves d'amour, meaning that uh, there is no love, uh, just proof of love. So definitely, since we uh, agree on the, on the principles, on the goals, on the long-term objectives, um, I will say that uh, we, should, uh, we should definitely build back better and make this relation great again to better address this China strategic issue. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, uh, Emmanuel. I appreciate that. Um, you know, I, I've got several questions here, um, a lot of good questions that are coming from the audience, but um, I wanted to just focus a second uh, on the cooperation question with you. You know, there's a saying in Washington, actually, that you should never ask a question you don't know the answer to, but I think since since I work at a think tank, maybe it's permissible. Um, can, can you give us an idea what the extent of uh, current dialogue with the U.S. is uh, from European perspective, from, from the French perspective, the current state of it, how intensive is the dialogue, how much how much is going on in terms of cooperation vis-a-vis -vis, uh, China now? Well, we enjoy an operational uh, uh, cooperation uh, with the U.S., uh, so we are uh, cooperating on a daily basis on, on, on a lot of issues. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, um, with China, the thing is that um, we had a lot of counterparts at the beginning of this administration, and and we had less and less counterparts to talk to um, as uh, this administration was going on. Um, so um, so once again, the thing is we don't have a problem on uh, the issue. We don't have any problem on how to define the issue, uh, but when it comes to uh, thinking of uh, operational solution or trying to uh, improve things, um, we need to be uh, firmly uh, entrenched in our administration and, 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 and we need our hierarchy to validate everything we do. Um, so 
I think that was one of uh, the issue here. Um, we are adding the same way, but uh, sometimes we have to put some things on hold and uh, for several reasons. Uh, and, and so it's difficult uh, for us um, to deal with it. Yeah, I think I think probably at the uh, Defense Ministry or Ministry for Foreign uh, for for uh, Armed Armed Forces, you have an easier time than some of the others. I think in terms of interacting with the United States, that is easier than some others. Maybe in the, in the French bureaucracy, fewer uh, fewer obstacles and that sort of thing. At least that's my my um, my guess there. Um, Alex, would you mind turning on your camera and joining us for some of the questions here? Um, I got a question from uh, the audience that I think uh, would, would be best directed at you, uh, Alex. The, um, you mentioned human rights, especially in Tibet, Xinjiang, and some other things. It's got people riveted, actually, especially the situation uh, with the Uyghurs. Um, are there avenues for cooperation now uh, with, with Europe to address those issues that we could use better, we, we could use better, we could make better use of uh, that maybe um, maybe could be effective in getting attention or getting some action on this. Uh, I would just uh, <clears throat> like to note that um, I was just in uh, in Brussels in Paris uh, about ten days ago, uh, and so for one one thing that that I had fruitful discussions on, for instance, on the human rights question is, as you may know, uh, we've issued a, a, a Xinjiang business advisory. Uh, which actually uh, connects two two of the challenges that we face vis-a-vis China. One is the human rights challenge, and the other one is the is the the economic and underlying supply chain uh, issue. So the Xinjiang Business Advisory is really raising the uh, 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 shining a light upon the issue that that some supply chains might be polluted by forced labor, and some companies companies unbeknownst to them might might be in a way. Uh, involved or, or or with their products or their activities in, in in what's happening in Xinjiang, which is which is as, as terrible echoes of the past. And so I think that uh, uh, as we know, President Macron has made a statement that what's happening in Xinjiang is unacceptable, and uh, French Foreign Minister uh, uh, has has called attention to that uh, very forcefully. So I think that I think that there is uh, there is some movement in kind of in the corporate social responsibility space that's been developing over the past. Uh, a couple of decades where this uh, challenge of human rights is emerging and uh, our European partners and allies, um, just as we do, care uh, quite a bit about it. So I hope that there'll be progress in that and in shining a light on things and how they connect with the supply chains, which we are all now attentive to because, because of how COVID has emerged. So people are looking into supply chains, resilience, uh, and, and, and kind of the responsibility, moral and, and legal and otherwise, that they may have some of these situations. Well, I think do you do you find that's more of a an accident of our shared values um, that we are in the same place on these issues, or is this something that we're talking to each other, that is the U.S. talking to the Europeans about on a regular basis? I think on this issue and many others, uh, I would say there are, you know, three ways I'll describe it. One is we have dialogues. We have we have strategic dialogues. We we have dialogues with the EU with the member states. Uh, there's a constant conversation. That's uh, to a great extent what we, the State Department, are in the business of. So a lot of this uh, has been sharing facts, uh, uh, data, uh, uh, information with our allies and partners, so that they can do their own. As we share our assessments, they can also do their own organic and independent assessments that are that are based on the way they evaluate these facts. So that there's an aspect of that. 
There's also an aspect which is an emergent convergence on this issue and others, which is rooted again in the fact that we share uh, not only the values but also many interests in common. So some of these some of these things have been emerging in an independent fashion, which is very welcome, right? Uh, mm -hmm. It is a reflection, as I mentioned earlier, of that of, of the underlying foundation that we share. And then number three, uh, not to be underestimated, uh, very very important. Uh, uh, China has really made it so that one cannot look the other way. Um, uh, uh, so the Chinese uh, are, are the big big variable in this greater convergence on the human rights challenge as well as other things because they have been so ham-handed in so many things that they're doing, both at home and abroad. At home in in China, uh, within the within their own region, and as well as the actions in Europe and elsewhere around the world, whether it's uh, the human rights abuses to to the to the to the malign influence, the the cyber challenges, the the disinformation during COVID, the so-called mask and vaccine diplomacy, the, the 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 Belt and Road Initiative, and how you know the debt the debt diplomacy. So that is also a huge factor, right? So the assessment, as you know. The national security community, uh, especially here, but also abroad, has been waking up to the challenge mm -hmm. of China for 20 some years, right? I mean, we can go back to the mid 90s Taiwan Straits crisis, to the 2001 Hainan Island incident, right? Uh, but there was still a responsible stakeholder, broader approach. Uh, um, and, and, and I think now, uh, I think China is emerging in such a way that, that no one can really look the other way. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. I mean, that's that's becoming so obvious in a way that 10 years ago or more, some of us were beating the issue so hard and weren't getting listened to very much. But now things have brought it front and center. And I think too often overlooked in this debate is the fact, because we have our own politics going on internally, and we have our politics going on with the EU and, and with Europe that people overlook. It's really not the US driving this new tension changes that have occurred in, in China over the last 10 years or so that we're basically slowly waking up to. And, and then and then the, those things are being punctuated now uh, from time to time by the Chinese side. Wang Yi's visit to Europe was a perfect example. He, he couldn't help himself messing that up, you know, because of where they're coming from. Um, Emmanuel, I, I wanted to, uh, we only have a few minutes here left, so I wanted to finish up with a couple questions uh, from the floor for you. Um, one regards the divide in Europe, at least a divide that may have been more clear in the past, but uh, but you tell us, uh, between the East and the West on matters of China. Uh, they have the 17 plus one arrangement and, and seem to have made, the Chinese have made more inroads in Eastern part of Europe um, uh, than in the West, uh, smaller economies that helps and some other things. But anyway, could you give some perspective on that? What's the What's the state of that? divide right now on issues related to China? As I said, uh, um, it, it is now a critical issue. Um, uh, for years, it has been a, a kind of a organizational issue. Every Everybody was looking at this 16 plus 1 a, 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 as a strange thing happening, but no one really cared about. Um, now it is, it, it is a political issue within uh, EU member states. I, I'm not sure that it is reflecting something structural among EU members, because uh, also it has non-EU members uh, within it. Um, but I think uh, at the beginning, uh, the member state found it uh, convenient. Um, 
now they could they could still find it uh, useful. Um, but uh, 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 the 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 challenge for Brussels is now to to make it less relevant uh, and, and to reduce its uh, usefulness. Um, so I'm not sure I'm unable to make an, a clear assessment of uh, what the member states achieved through their uh, participation in uh, the 17 plus one. Mm -hmm. It seems still attractive since Greece decided to join uh, last year. Uh, but I'm not sure that uh, uh, China will be able to deliver better things uh, through uh, this network. Um, mm -hmm. As I said, uh, we had also mixed signals from member states. Um, last week, I guess, uh, the foreign ministry from Estonia uh, put the fact that maybe his country was willing to withdraw uh, because of the human rights situation in China and the fact that they did not agree on, on the basic principles and values um, behind it. So um, I don't know. I don't. Uh, 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 maybe we should question the survivability of uh, the 17 plus one, and, and, and to ask us frankly uh, if we would not be better off. Uh, definitely. Yeah, it does seem like maybe the Chinese missed their window there to uh, to perform on that in a way that could lure away um, uh, Eastern European members of the EU or like you say non uh, non members of the EU uh, but I, I think I think the other part of their strategy there that is the Chinese strategy is to complicate things within the EU and we saw that uh, with statements on the human rights situation or statements on South China Sea uh, and that uh, if I, I hear you correctly that seems to be losing some saliency it, it seems in, in those issues. I mean, we, we'll see how the next statements come out, and, and you know whether whether certain countries stand up and, and uh, block them. But uh, but it but it but it does it does seem to be waning a little bit. Uh, you I'm know, not going to drop any name here, but uh, if you look at uh, who voted against the joint communique, uh, they are not all members of the 17 plus one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There you have it. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, I would like to get to another few questions, but that's all the time we have. We, we, this was a really a terrific, uh, a terrific discussion. I appreciate you, Emmanuel, going through so much trouble uh, to uh, to be with us um, uh, at the end of your day there, um, and and Alex as well. Thank you for 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 uh, being with us today and for uh, working through um, the technical issues. Um, I think it, it it looks a lot easier when it actually uh, comes on screen than than it takes for us to line these things up. So thank you very much uh, uh, for joining us. Um, I um, I just want to mention in closing that you know my email is there on the screen for members of the audience. If you want to follow up with me, I'm glad to continue to have the conversation or or respond to anything that you may you may have to offer. Um, and then I want to let you know we'll be sending out a, a survey after this as just standard heritage SOP to to make sure to, to get your feedback and to uh, give us any ideas you have for future programs. In the meantime, check out uh, heritage.org uh, backslash events to see what else might be coming up that you might want to might want to join in. So again, thank you very much, Manuel, Alex. So great to have you. I hope I uh, hope we can continue this this conversation into the future. And thank you all to our to our guests. Um, have a very good day. Have a good night. Bonsoir in, in France. Um, and we'll see you next time.
Take care.